Introduction to The Little Minister. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. The Little Minister by J. M. Barrie. Introductory Essay. J. M. Barrie, A Literary and Biographical Portrait. James Matthew Barrie was born at Kiramure, Forfarshire, on May 9, 1860. Kiramure, as soberly stated by the Encyclopaedia Britannica, is a borough of barony and a market town of Forfarshire, Scotland. Beautifully situated on an eminence above the glen through which the Garry flows, it lies about five miles northwest of Forfar and about sixty-two miles north of Edinburgh. The special industry of the town is linen weaving, for which large power loom factories have recently been built. Mr. Berry has made his birthplace famous as Thrums, after hesitating for a little between that name and Winds, which is the word used in the earliest Old Licht sketches. Thrums has often been pictured by Mr. Berry, the most elaborate description, being probably that contained in the first draft of When a Man's Single. Thrums is but a handful of houses jumbled together in a cup, from which one of the pieces is gone. Through this outlet ran the one that turned the sawmill wheel, and a dusty road twisted out of it to the south. Fifty years ago, when every other room had its hand-loom, and thousands of weavers lived and died, Thoros without knowing it, the cup overflowed and left several houses on top of the hill. The skeletons of some of these shivering dwellings still stand, choked in an overgrowth of weeds and currant bushes, and occasionally one is occupied by some needy person, who during the heavy snowstorms takes a spade inside with him at nights to dig himself out in the morning. Then he is blown down the hill to his work. There were wintry mornings when Thrums, viewed from the top of the ridge, was but two gaunt church steeples and a dozen red stone walls standing out of a snow heap. Weavers in the second story walked out of their windows instead of down the outside stair that gave them a private door and, looking about them for the quarry that was their great landmark, fell into buried hen-roosts, where they sat motionless till they saw what had happened to them. The square is Thrums' heart. From it a road to the north climbs straight up the bowl, as if anxious to get out of it. When most of the houses near this thoroughfare were put up, it had not struck the builders to take it into account, and many houses were only approachable by straggling paths that doubled round little gardens, and became in winter tributaries of the Wunny. There were houses that were most easily reached by scaling dikes. The main road comes to a sudden stop at the rim of the bowl, short of breath, or frightened to cross the common of wind and broom that bars the way to the north, with toadstools only to show that this has once been a forest, and slippery roots pressing up the turf, the ribs of the earth showing. Over this common, one end of which, lapping into the valley, has been converted into an overflow cemetery, there are many cart tracks that in combination would be a road. Mr. Barry's father is of an old Kiramure stock, and a member of the South Free Church there. His mother, nay Ogilvy, was originally an Odd Licht, and is learned in the Odd Licht traditions. Both are still living, but only a part of Mr. Barry's boyhood was spent in Kiramure, at an early age he went to Dumfries, where his brother was inspector of schools. He was a pupil in the Dumfries Academy. At that time Thomas Carlyle was not an infrequent visitor to the town, 
where his sister, Mr. Aitken, and his friend, the venerable poet-editor, Thomas Aird, were then living. The boy often saw Carlyle, and eagerly heard the gossip about his sayings and doings. Carlyle is, we believe, the only author by whom Mr. Barry thinks he has been influenced. The Carlyle fever did not last very long, but was acute for a time. He fervently defended his master against the innumerable critics called into activity by Mr. Froude's biography. Apart from this, Dumfries seems to have left no very definite mark on his mind. The only one of his teachers who impressed him was Mr. Cranstown, the accomplished translator from the Latin poets, and he rather indirectly than directly. In the Dumfries papers, Mr. Barry inaugurated his literary career by contributing accounts of cricket matches and letters signed Paterfamilias, urging the desirability of pupils having longer holidays. He was the idlest of schoolboys and seldom opened his books except to draw pictures on them, but he was, and is, an enthusiast in outdoor games. Dumfries and the neighborhood have helped him very little in the way of copy. Gretna Green was near and made the subject of an article in the English Illustrated Magazine, and of one, and possibly more, in the St. James Gazette. At the age of eighteen, Mr. Barry entered Edinburgh University. His brother had studied in Aberdeen with another famous native of Kirmuir, Dr. Alexander White, of Free St. George's, Edinburgh. At Aberdeen you could live much more cheaply. Also it was easier there to get a bursary, enough to keep soul and body together till an income could be earned. The struggles and triumphs of Aberdeen students greatly impressed Mr. Barry, who has often repeated the story thus told in the Nottingham Journal. I knew three undergraduates who lodged together in a dreary house at the top of a dreary street, two of whom used to study until two in the morning, while the third slept. When they shut up their books, they woke number three, who arose, dressed, and studied till breakfast time. Among the many advantages of this arrangement, the chief was that, as they were dreadfully poor, one bed did for the three. Two of them occupied it at one time, and the third at another. Terrible privations, frightful destitution, not a bit of it. The millennium was in those days. If life was at the top of a hundred steps, if students occasionally died of hunger and hard work combined, if the midnight oil only burned to show a ghastly face, weary and worn, if lodgings were cheap and dirty, and dinners few and far between, life was still real and earnest. In many cases it did not turn out an empty dream. In Edinburgh University, the storm and stress are much mitigated. There, we understand, graduates receive their degrees in evening dress, a condition which, if it had been insisted upon twenty years ago in Aberdeen, would have debarred ninety-nine out of every hundred M.A.'s. Of his college experience, Mr. Barry has written in that bright little volume, An Edinburgh Eleven. As might have been expected, Masson was the professor who sent his life off at a new angle. He came to Masson's classes with a reverence for literature and literary men which the professor did nothing to lessen. As he afterwards said, There are men who are good to think of, and as a rule we only know them by their books something of our pride in life would go with their fall to have one such professor at a time is the most a university can hope of human nature so edinburgh need not expect another just yet in the english literature class mr barry took a high place 
and he was proximi accessit for the Vans Dunlop Scholarship in English Literature. He was also interested in Professor Campbell Fraser's class. For the rest, Mr. Berry was a quiet and fairly industrious student, passing his examinations creditably, getting through many novels, and on the whole enjoying life. He made very few friends in his student days. The most intimate of these, his fellow lodger, died young. In his Edinburgh Eleven, Mr. Berry says, During the four winters, another and I were in Edinburgh. We never entered any but free churches. This seems to have been less on account of a scorn for other denominations than because we never thought of them. We felt sorry for the men who knew no better than to claim to be on the side of Dr. McGregor. Even our free kirks were limited to two, St. George's and the free high. After all, we must have been liberally minded beyond most of our fellows, for, as a rule, those who frequented one of these churches shook their heads at the other. It is said that Dr. White and Dr. Smith have a great appreciation of each other. They, too, are liberally minded. To contrast the two leading free church ministers in Edinburgh as they struck a student would be to become a boy again. The one is always ready to go on fire, and the other is sometimes at hand with a jug of cold water. Dr. Smith counts a hundred before he starts, while the minister of free St. George's is off at once on a gallop, and would always arrive first at his destination if he had not sometimes to turn back. He is not only a Gladstonian, but Gladstonian. His enthusiasm carries him on as a stream drives the engine. Mr. Smith, being a critic, with a faculty of satire, what would rouse the one man makes the other smile. Of Dr. White, in his first contribution to the British Weekly, which has not been republished, Mr. Berry tells us that the inhabitants of Thrums will discuss any topic with you, from the ontology of being to Robert Louis Stevenson's style, but for choice give them the Reverend Dr. White. So many of them told me that he was born there, and asked if I had the privilege of his acquaintance, since they heard I knew Edinburgh, that it became monotonous. So when I saw that any of them was about to speak, I saved him the trouble. I know Dr. White was born here, I said, and I have the privilege of his acquaintance. Nothing is more remarkable about Dr. White than his warm and Catholic literary sympathies, of which Robert Louis Stevenson and many others could speak. None of them could say more than Mr. Barry in summing up his fellow townsman and former pastor. The best cure for dissatisfaction with one's self, I know, is a talk with the pastor of Free St. George's. You could not have it without feeling, when you came away, that you were an excellent person after all. If I were a minister preaching a sermon on Dr. White, that would be my text. Mr. Barry was a member of Dr. White's famous Bible class, in which the theology of Dante and other deep things are taught, and to every member of which the conductor recently presented a unique volume of Dante notes and pictures. Walter Smith, as he is affectionately called, was also a favorite with the student, though they did not meet personally. There is a sort of Freemasonry among the men who have come under the influence of Dr. Smith. It seems to have steadied them, to have given them wise rules of life that have taken the noise out of them and left them undemonstrative, quiet, determined. You will have little difficulty, as a rule, in picking out Dr. Smith's men, whether in the pulpit or in private. They have his mark, as the rugby boys are marked by Dr. Arnold. Even in speaking of him, they seldom talk in superlatives. Only a light comes into their eye, 
and you realize what a well-founded reverence is. Another Kiramir man occupied at that time a prominent position in Edinburgh, Mr. W. R. Lawson. Mr. Lawson was editor of the now-defunct Edinburgh Current, the organ of the Scottish Tories. The Current, so far as news went, was never a particularly enterprising and successful paper, but from the days of Francis Espinasa and James Hannay, it had a literary reputation which did not diminish in Mr. Lawson's hands. The literary impulse, however, had hardly moved Mr. Barry then, and all he wrote for the paper was a few miscellaneous criticisms. The bent of his mind, however, was decidedly to literature. In 1882 he graduated, and was for some months in Edinburgh doing nothing in particular. In Masson's class he had made a special study of the Elizabethan satirists, and he thought of writing a book on that subject. In the meantime he saw an advertisement, asking for a leader writer to an English provincial paper. The salary offered was three guineas a week. He made application for this, giving references to Dr. Masson and Dr. White, and found himself in February 1883 installed as leader writer to the Nottingham Journal. He was not editor, the work of arranging the paper being in other hands, but he was allowed to write as much as he pleased, and practically what he pleased. Some of his Nottingham experiences are described more or less faithfully in When a Man's Single. His life in that town was very solitary. Outside the newspaper office he had few friends. He wrote often as much as four columns a day, and withal found time to hang heavily on his hands. In the leaders, which are very serious and largely political, it is difficult to recognize his hand, but in other parts of the paper it can be traced easily enough. He wrote an article every Monday, signed Hippomenes, on such subjects as Pretty Boys, Martin Marprelate, Tom Nash, Mothers-in-Law, Waiters, and the like. He also contributed a column of miscellaneous notes every Thursday by a modern peripatetic. The Nottingham Journal apparently did not receive many books for review, but the magazines were noticed every month, and occasionally new novels were criticized. Mr. Barry expresses more than once a strong admiration, which he still retains, for the American novelists George W. Cable, and for the essayist John Burroughs. Cable, he says, is a novelist who for pathos and delicate character studies is not to be matched on this side of the Atlantic, one who in the age of scribbling can be a poet in prose, who is wise and epigrammatic, as he is elevating and refined, and whose humor is not less than his poetry. The paper, before the end of his connection with it, began to take on a literary touch. The week after he left it relapsed. Reviewing the nineteenth century, his successor declared that an article by Dr. Jessop on the Black Death contains much information as to the ravages of a disease of a deadly character derived from historical documents of a reliable character. It was a very old paper, and there were strange eccentricities in the make-up. The paper is now, we believe, amalgamated with the Nottingham Express. The following paragraphs will give an idea of Mr. Barry's early style in journalism. The infatuation is as strong as ever, and there seems little hope of the spell being broken. On the most reliable authority, we know that the coldest night of the past year saw 132,076 young men in the open air, the majority without mufflers round their miserable necks or greatcoats on their ridiculous bodies, swearing by the bright moon over their heads that there were never or could be such angelic persons 
as the 132,076 deceivers who accompanied them. The candid critic is a gentleman of whom all authors approve when he praises their last volume. What I wanted, they explain, is no gush of praise, as from a friend, but simply a calm, just review, slating my work, if it deserves slating, commending it if it deserves commendation. Noble fellows. Then when the critic, who is very young in this case, observes that the work bears distinct traces of genius, is Shakespearean without Shakespeare's coarseness, reminds one of Milton in his best moments, and suggests Tennyson before the poet laureate's hand lost its cunning, the author smiles gently to himself, and repeats that what he wanted was an honest criticism, and he thinks he has got it. But perhaps the candid critic is not young, or has been eating lobster the night before the book comes in for review. What then? He quotes a poetaster. Maybe. There is no sacred fire in it, nor much of homely sense and shrewd. Imperfect lines, imperfect rhymes, false quantities, mistaken chimes, yet all the feeling good. When this is the kind of criticism offered, the indignant poet, before hanging himself, writes a letter to the editor pointing out that his critic is a scoundrel who, etc., etc. In short, with ninety-nine out of every hundred authors, simple justice means indiscriminate praise. A great deal of nonsense will be talked over the Queen's book for the next nine days. It is said that too many benefits were showered upon John Brown, but that is nonsense. In the new book the Queen tells how she presented her attendant on one occasion with an oxidized silver biscuit box, which drew tears from his eyes and the exclamation that this was too much. God knows it is not, is Her Majesty's remark, and I can't see that it was. A public meeting friend of my acquaintance used to attend every meeting in his neighborhood for the purpose of calling out, Hear, hear, question, order, and no, no, and always turned to the newspapers of next day with anxiety to see if his share in the proceedings had been reported. Where they were attended to, he carefully preserved copies of the newspapers, and there can be little doubt that this is the most singular case of literary vanity known since the introduction of printing. The scene was a law court in Paris, and an eloquent young advocate was pleading the cause of his client in a way that brought tears to the eyes of many of his hearers. The speech was recited from memory, and the pleader had taken the precaution of distributing printed copies among the reporters, so that his speech should be read properly in the morning's newspapers. And now, he exclaimed, I feel myself wholly unworthy to occupy the proud position I hold this day. The onerous nature of the task makes me tremble, lest I should not do my unhappy client justice, and I cry, Would to God that an abler advocate would take my place. Here he faltered, put his handkerchief to his eyes, and seemed overcome with emotion. Unfortunately, one of the reporters did not understand, and fearing that the lawyer had forgotten what came next, he hurriedly looked up the place in his copy of the speech to prompt him. But the tears I see even now, he exclaimed in a loud whisper, in the eyes of my unhappy client nerve me to the task. Of course the tables were dissolved in laughter, and the eloquent pleader found that an untimely interruption had been sufficient to rob him of a reputation. People with blood in their veins no doubt look upon a reception at court as a much more serious thing than the rabble who have to be content with water. But even after that is taken into consideration, it does seem a trifle ridiculous that the possibility of royal displeasure should be sufficient to break off a match. 
for my own part i am very ready to admit that england has seldom had a better sovereign than the present one but as for there being any honour in being received by her at court i don't see it if i saw the whole royal family coming up one street i should glide into another and mean no disrespect to them the glue that keeps the world together is self-esteem it is terrible to think of what might happen did smith sometimes take it into his head that it was not worth his while to try to outdo robinson or brown and life would still be worth living though his income were fifty pounds per annum short of jones's a scotchman held that in the scriptural phrase there were giants in those days the italicized word is a misprint for grants mr aldrich fair slender etc mr h james stout ruddy etc the description reads like a slave dealer's catalogue i remember being invited with a batch of other undergraduates once to assist at a banquet given by a college professor to his private lady students when i know that i am expected to talk to young ladies i prepare some half-dozen suitable remarks to fire off at intervals and i was on the point of commencing number one which was no doubt of a frivolous nature to the genius who was placed by my side when she raised her saucer eyes and asked me eagerly whether i did not think that berkeley's immaterialism was founded on anatological misconception i contrived to whisper that such had always been my secret impression then quietly fainted and was sent home to be bled during the last months of his stay in nottingham mr barry had begun to send articles to the london papers the first of these was published by mr stead then editing the pall mall gazette and told how penny dreadfuls were written a much more important step in his career was his introduction to mr greenwood and the st james gazette to mr greenwood he sent an article on an auld licht community the germ of his many writings on that subject it was at once accepted and inserted in the st james's gazette of november seventeenth eighteen eighty four we take a brief extract from this paper scotland had not been long known to me before i reached the conclusion that the score of back-bent poverty-laden natives of the smaller towns whose last years are a struggle with the workhouse almost invariably constitute an auld licht congregation of which a very young man is the minister the first minister ever placed in my auld licht kirk accepted the call as from the mouth of hell according to rumour the natives had a weakness for hot dinners on sunday indeed the backsliding had gone so far that only a boy minister could have accomplished the work of regeneration the little girl who accompanied him was his wife and he proved himself a beardless hero in auld licht general gordon nothing in the auld licht kirk which i used to know so well affords more food for reflection than the fact that a handful of paupers contrived to make up a salary for a minister some articles on other subjects sent to mr greenwood were declined but a second auld article was promptly accepted mr barry thereupon wrote to mr greenwood asking whether in his judgment he should come to london and venture on a journalistic career mr greenwood wrote that he as yet did not know that his correspondent could do any good work save on the one subject of the odd licks and that he could not therefore advise him to come up the young journalist took his own way he established himself in london early in eighteen eighty five and since then some hundreds of articles by him have appeared in the st james's he wrote on all kinds of subjects and a few of his articles have been strung together in my lady nicotine many remain unreprinted 
Besides articles, he wrote occasional notes. In Mr. Greenwood he found a kind and wise editor, and a strong friendship has ever since subsisted between the two. To Mr. Greenwood's paper, The Anti-Jacobin, Mr. Barry has contributed from the outset. During the early days of his stay in London, Mr. Barry came to know Mr. Alexander Raich, then of the Daily Telegraph, now editor of the Edinburgh Evening Dispatch, the liveliest of the evening papers. When Mr. Raich was called up to Scotland, he showed his characteristic discernment in enrolling Mr. Barry as one of his contributors, and from the first number of the Evening Dispatch, down to a comparatively recent period, it has contained much work of various kinds from his pen. They appeared on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Many others form a rather curious comment on the chief events of Edinburgh history during those years. Principal Rainey's opinion, for instance, is an interview by telephone with Dr. Rainey in Australia at the time of the Dodds election. The grand feature of the Parnell freedom reveals why Bailey Walcott is elated. Being, after all, only a man, he is naturally elated at having to announce that more persons regret their inability to be present on this interesting occasion than ever regretted their inability to be present at anything in Edinburgh before. Most of the dispatch articles, however, have more than a local and temporary interest. Here, for instance, are a few. I look so young. If I were to go back to the place of my boyhood, and find that it had forgotten me, I would probably fling my hat into the air for joy. I have no such luck. Every other summer or so I return to B for a few days, and there are very few persons who know that I have ever been away. My greatest trial in B is to meet one of the two Miss F's, two old maiden ladies, who do not seem to realize that the years glide on. It was near B that I was at school, and the Miss F's thought I was still there, when I had been for years at Edinburgh University. Always when we meet in High Street of B, they ask me how I was getting on at the grammar school this year, and for a time I explained that I was now in Edinburgh. They expressed surprise at my going there so young, at which I flushed, and then the next time we met they asked again how I was liking the grammar school. In time I gave them up, and when they inquired how I was getting on at the grammar school, I merely said that I was liking it very well. All this led to a complications, for in my last year at Edinburgh's the Miss F.'s discovered that I really was at the university, and resented my not telling them that I was going. They have always felt sure that this last year was my first year at the university, and so they puzzle their friends considerably by saying that I took my degree after only being at Edinburgh for a few months. How I did it no one can make out, but I have been told that at the tea parties which the Miss F.'s give the affair is frequently discussed, the hostesses going into full details about remembering me quite well as a schoolboy precisely ten months before I graduated. The general impression, I understand, is that I must be exceedingly clever. Indeed, the local paper had a photograph about me being the only case on record of a student who had taken his M.A. in one session. On running after a hat. Some don't run. They pretend to smile when they see their hat borne along on the breeze, and glance at the laughing faces around in a way, implying, yes, it is funny, and I enjoy the joke, although the hat is mine. Nobody believes you, but if this does you good, you should do it. You don't attempt to catch your hat, as it were, on the wing. You walk after it, smiling, as if you liked the joke the more you think of it, and confident that the hat will come to rest presently. You are not the sort of man to make a fuss over a hat. You won't give the hat the satisfaction of thinking that it can annoy you. 
strange though it may seem there are idiots who will join you in pursuit of the hat one will hook it with a stick and almost get it only not quite another will manage to hit it hard with an umbrella a third will get his foot into it or on it this does not improve the hat but it shows that there is a good deal of the milk of human kindness flowing in the street as well as water and is perhaps pleasant to think of afterwards several times you almost have the hat in your possession it lies motionless just where it has dropped after coming in contact with a hansom were you to make a sudden rush at it you could have it but we have agreed that you are not that sort of man you walk forward stoop and one reads how the explorer thinks he has shot a buffalo dead and advances to put his foot proudly on the carcass how the buffalo then rises and how the explorer then rises also i have never seen an explorer running after his hat though i should like to but your experience is similar to his with the buffalo as your hand approaches the hat the latter turns over like a giant refreshed and waddles out of your reach once more your hand is within an inch of it when it makes off again there are ringing cheers from the audience on the pavement some of them meant for the hat and others as an encouragement to you before you get your hat you have begun to realize what deer stalking is and how important a factor is the wind there were two rival shoemakers who tried to discover for themselves how to become rich and each wanted at the same time to make the other poor whenever the one sent out handbills in glorification of himself so did the other and in this way they succeeded only in killing each other's efforts which was always something one of them had a son at college and when this youth came home for his vacations his assistance was requested he knew a thing or two and soon his father's shop had a card conspicuous in its windows saying mens est sana which the learned folk said was latin it did not bring new customers to the shop in great numbers but it maddened the rival shoemaker who could not rest until he had eclipsed it soon his window bore the still prouder device mens and women's est sana which must have been a pain to the other to read although many of mr barry's articles and particularly the alt licht papers had attracted attention his personality was as yet only known to a very few the editor of the british weekly which had then been published about six months was one day reflecting gloomily on whether it was possible to find a man who could write in a lively way on scottish ecclesiastical affairs he took up the edinburgh evening dispatch and found in it a burlesque account of the inverness assembly of the free church he lost no time in putting himself in communication with the writer and on july first eighteen eighty seven an article appeared on the front page of the british weekly the rev dr white by an outsider it was signed gavin ogilvy and in scotland immediately drew attention to the writer he followed it up by weekly contributions continued during a long period before many months had passed his name and style were well known north and south this was owing simply to the fact that his articles had for the first time a signature in the winter of eighteen eighty seven mr barry issued a humorous little shilling book called better dead the germ of which was to be found in a paper published in the st james's gazette for april twenty first eighteen eighty five suggesting the formation of a society for getting rid of people who would be better out of the way and proposing mr malloch as a good beginning in march eighteen eighty eight a much more important book odd licht idols was published and dedicated to frederick greenwood when mr barry came up to london he had letters of introduction from professor masson to an eminent publisher and to mr john morley 
he took his odd-licked idols to the publisher and was told that although they were pleasant reading they would never be a successful book mr morley then editor of macmillan asked him to send a list of subjects on which he was willing to write the request was complied with but the subjects were returned by mr morley with the singularly uncharacteristic comment that they were not sufficiently up to date mr morley who has since read with great admiration all mr barry's works was much astonished at having this brought to his remembrance the other day odd flicked idols soon made its way when a man's single was published in september eighteen eighty eight dedicated to w robertson nickel the story was originally published in the british weekly but as his manner is mr barry made great changes in revisiting it for publication it was well received and was pronounced by the london daily news as perhaps the best single volume novel of the year it is not at all autobiographical though it gives the author's impressions of journalistic life in nottingham and london perhaps the best parts of it are those devoted to thrums of which george meredith expressed special admiration a widow in thrums was published in may eighteen eighty nine it contained articles contributed to the national observer the british weekly and the st james's gazette together with new matter until the little minister was published it was the most popular of the author's works and it is hard to conceive how he can surpass certain parts of it it has found admirers among all classes of his journalistic humor we may cite the society for providing materials for volumes of reminiscences in eighteen ninety mr barry contributed to the september number of the fortnightly review an article entitled pro bono publico it contained the circular of the above-named society addressed to every writing person over fifty years of age with specimen reminiscences and prices here are one or two of the specimens i saw a great deal of carlyle in those days and what days they were if in a genial mood as was not always the case carlyle was the best of company and strange to say i never think of shaney road now without hearing his loud guffaws ah sage gone into the night since the days when you and i and f and k smoked our churchwardens by the warm fireplace to know you best was to love you most he who can quote you as a cynic forgets the hearty laugh that took all the malice from your vehement utterances it was not a laugh at the expense of those you were speaking of but at your grand honest self that guffaw was the blast with which you blew over the fabrication that your imagination had built riotously and that word last reminds me of carlyle's love for it no i'm not smoking he said on the day i had the memorable pleasure of meeting him for the first time this put me in a predicament for there was a pipe in his mouth as he spoke and he was puffing vigorously nevertheless how could i contradict him while i sat awed under the shadow of his personality carlyle saw my embarrassment and like a true gentleman at once put me at my ease ah sir you're a grand sample of the complete idiot he said in the winning phraseology that has been so much misunderstood we didn't have the morrows of you in scotland i'm thinking and then he went on to explain that in his young days people did not speak of smoking but of blasting a far more expressive word he then launched into a magnificent panegyric of tobacco declaring that to look back to the days when he did not smoke was a humiliation smoke as hard as a man may he said dejectedly he can never make up for those lost days then handing me my hat in the courtliest manner he said and now young man 
be off to your mother always be thoughtful of your mother i guarantee she would miss you more than i do thus ended my first meeting with carlyle i used to meet matthew arnold at various houses even at shaney road though i question whether he and carlyle sufficiently appreciated each other i had the good fortune to be at the famous dinner at b t in hampstead when arnold and mr ruskin met for the first time all who were present on that occasion will remember thieves broke into the pantry while we were at dinner and made off with some silver spoons the conversation at dinner was chiefly on this incident after we had adjourned to the drawing-room i took an opportunity of asking mr ruskin how he liked arnold i don't know what to think of him the great art critic answered excitedly mr arnold never took his eyes off me during dinner i was most uncomfortable everybody must have noticed it it even seemed to me that he was looking at me suspiciously good heavens is it possible that he suspected me of complicity with the thieves as it happened arnold and i shared a handsome home and our talk turned to mr ruskin what on earth made ruskin look at me so fixedly during the dinner arnold asked hotly i never looked up but his eyes were on me my dear sir he glared at me as if he thought i had those silver spoons in my pocket a letter soon arrived at the fortnightly office from a german gentleman saying that he had been gathering reminiscences of german authors but could not find enough to make a volume he therefore desired to order from the society as much as would complete his book all mr barry's editors are accustomed to get similar epistles from readers without any sense of humour most frequently the writers conceive that there is an occult and improving moral hidden away and insist on the editor declaring the same brought back from elysium contemporary review june eighteen ninety describes a colloquy held by five eminent novelists a realist a romancist an elsmerian a stylist and an american with the ghosts of scott fielding smollett dickens and thackeray in reply to criticism sir walter says when i wrote ivanhoe i merely wanted to to tell a story realist still in your treatment of the templar you boldly cast off the chains of romanticism and rise to realism elsmerian to do you justice the templar seems to have had religious doubts stylist I once wrote a little paper on your probable reasons for using the word wand in circumstances that would, perhaps, have justified the use of reed. I have not published it. American. I remember reading Ivanhoe before I knew any better, but even then I thought it poor stuff. There is no analysis worthy of the name. Why did Rowena drop her handkerchief? Instead of telling us that, you pranced off after a band of archers. Do you really believe that intellectual men and women are interested in tournaments? sir walter you have grown so old since my day the eminent novelists are equally hard upon dickens dickens i am a realist it is true that you wrote about the poor but how do you treat them are they all women of the street and howling ruffians instead of dwelling for ever on their sodden misery and gloating over their immorality you positively regard them from a genial standpoint i regret to say it but you are a romancist Romancist. No, no, Mr. Dickens, do not cross to me. You wrote it with a purpose, sir. Remember Dothaboy's Hall. Elsmerian. A novel without a purpose is as a helmless ship. Dickens, aghast. Then I am an Elsmerian. Elsmerian. Alas, 
you had no other purpose than to add to the material comforts of the people. Not one of your characters was troubled with religious doubts. Where does Mr. Pickwick pause to ask himself why he should not be an atheist? You cannot answer. In these days of earnest self-communion we find Mr. Pickwick painfully wanting. How can readers rise from his pages in distress of mind? You never give them a chance. Give me a chair and a man with doubts, and I will give you a novel. In October 1888, Mr. Berry wrote a critical article on George Meredith's novels for the Contemporary Review. Were I to pick out Mr. Meredith's triumph in phrase-making, he says, I could tattoo the contemporary with them, to use one of his own phrases. He has made it his business to pin them to his pages as a collector secures butterflies. He succeeds, I believe, in this perilous undertaking as often as he fails. He must have the largest vocabulary of any living man. It is told of a great newspaper editor that he had a contributor with a curious craze for introducing the latest thing in felt hats into his articles. A hundred times the editor struck the felt hats out, and a time came when he dreamed nightly that his contributor had outwitted him. Mr. Meredith seems to have similar nightmares about the commonplace, and undeniably the phraseology which he offers as a substitute strews the reader's path with stones. Another of Mr. Berry's critical articles is that on Thomas Hardy, Contemporary Review, July 1889, from which we quote the sentence, There is a public that compares Mr. Hardy when he is writing of young ladies with the conjurer who brings strange things out of an empty box. There are clever novelists in plenty to give us the sentimental aspect of country life, and others can show its crueler side. Some paint its sunsets, some never get beyond its pig troughs, or its alehouses. Many can be sarcastic about its dullness. But Mr. Hardy is the only man among them who can scour the village and miss nothing. He knows the common as Mr. Jeffreys knew it, but he knows the inhabitants as well as the common. Among English novelists of today, he is the only realist to be considered, so far as life in country parts is concerned. Mr. Barry's other contemporary articles are Baring Gould, February 1890, and Rudyard Kipling, February 1891. Here it may be proper to say that when Mr. Berry commenced writing on the odd licks, he had no conception that they would afford material for more than an article or two. But the subject grew on him. His maternal grandfather was a main prop of the odd licked kirk, and some of the incidents in his stories are probably traditions. But there are no actual portraits in the books. The Reverend Dr. Jameson, the well-known author of the Scottish Dictionary, had a call at as early an age as the little minister. Dr. Jameson, whose father was an anti-burger minister in Glasgow, entered college in his ninth year and the Divinity Hall in his fourteenth, studying four sessions at the first and six at the second. At the age of twenty he was licensed to preach and was immediately called by congregations in Dundee, Perth, and Forfar. He was, against his own will, settled in for far, the Tilly-drum of the Idols, and only a few miles distant from Thrums. The fact is the ministers of the odd-licked kirk in Kirimur almost always began their work when very young. My Lady Nicotine, reprinted from the St. James's Gazette, was published in April 1890, and although issued later than A Window in Thrums, it is really in point of time almost the first of the author's books. The main object in publishing it was to assert his right in the St. James's articles, 
which have been attributed to many people. He has thought of republishing in the same way his St. James's views of a schoolboy. Mr. Barry has from the first contributed regularly to the Scots Observer, now the National Observer. In the Speaker, he has also written many articles. In January 1891, Mr. Barry commenced a story in Good Words entitled The Little Minister, which, in the opinion of his admirers, is his greatest book. When published in book form, it was received with one burst of acclamation and has proved far more popular than even A Window in Thrums. He is engaged on another Thrums book about Haggart, who is his favorite among his creations. It will be almost entirely new, very little use being made of what is already published. In addition, he is engaged in a one-volume story dealing with London life. He feels that he has not exhausted Thrums, and that he has materials there for many more books. But there are signs that his mind is turning to London, between which and Thrums he divides his time. The three illustrations of this sketch are from photographs depicting the kirk, the manse, which has been modernized, and the window, near his own home, which suggested to Mr. Barry a window in Thrums. The etched portrait is from a recent excellent photograph. End of J. M. Barry, A Literary and Biographical Portrait